Welcome to the One Crossing Podcast. Here you can find past sermons along with other exclusive content. Our prayer is that God will move in your life even when you are on the go. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, hello, Crossing Church. It's good to see all of you today. And those of you that attended last week already know the treat that you're in for this week. Uh, it's uh, been, oh, I don't know, a couple of months ago that uh, Randy actually gave me the privilege of pre-reading uh, a book that he had uh, written called His Mighty Strength. And uh, it was uh, a very uh, healing book from uh, the, exactly the right foundation. And uh, there's nobody like Randy to lay a, bi- a better biblical foundation uh, that I know of. Many of you don't maybe realize this, but you've been pastored by Randy for more than a year without even knowing it because he was the one behind the story. He was the one behind believe. And so that's like over 60 weeks right there that we've experienced together as a church family. I can tell you that I've been personally ministered to by Randy uh, in in many ways, and I, I count him uh, to be a, a great friend and uh, uh, a fellow co-worker in the faith. Uh, the reason that you say upper story and lower story is because of Randy, and uh, uh, that was transformative uh, in my life. And so, uh, and so, if this is your first week, this week you need to go download last week and watch that. But for the second week of His Mighty Strength, I want you to help me and just welcome Randy Frazee. Would you do that right now? Thank you, Jerry. Well, hello, Crossing. It is so great to see you. Uh, It is exactly three hours and 43 minutes from Kansas City, my house, uh, to the crossing. And it was a wonderful journey, but growing up a city boy and being in major cities, I learned a few things uh, having to drive here. And number one is that you do not just pass a gas station uh, uh, because you have no idea when the next one's coming. And so that's not only for gas, but if you're over the age of 50 like me, it's for other things as well. It is such a joy to be here with you and to share these uh, messages with you. And uh, I would have come just to hang out with, with Jerry and Allison. They, uh, I can tell you a couple things about them. As we gather uh, several times a year uh, with like-minded pastors around the country, Jerry is known as the smartest guy in the room. I mean, it, he's a super, super smart guy. Uh, But also, I will tell you this, every time I'm with him, he expresses his deep love for the crossing and for the people of this city. Uh, He and Allison love this city. And the the third and most important thing for me is that he has been my friend. And one of the reasons I gave him His Mighty Strength, the newest book coming out uh, for me, is because he is a part of that story. Because I'm going to tell you a little bit about the journey that I've been on. and, And in that journey... Uh, uh, there was a friend, a couple of friends who were pastors around the country that helped me, who undergirded me, and your pastor and his wife are, are, are those people. And so that's one of the reasons I asked him to write the book and, and, and to offer up an endorsement. And it's been great to get to know some of you. I got to meet Clayton. Yay! I got to meet Clayton. He's a big man. Yeah, he is. And uh, he reminds me of that character on the, the HDTV show called Hometown. 
you know, right? And I'm not going to make any more fun of him because he could kick the stuffing out of me. But I am super excited in getting to know him and his leadership uh, here as well. Um, Let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity right now to, to, to dive into your word to find not only information and new insights, but to find hope, to find healing, to find inspiration, to not only take in for ourselves, but to pass on to somebody who desperately, desperately needs it in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our city, or somewhere else around the world. May we be faithful servants of your word today. We pray this in his name. And everyone said? Without question, one of the greatest tightrope walkers of all times is a guy named Charles Blondin. Charles Blondin. He is a Frenchman, and in 1859, he actually walked across the Niagara Falls on a tightrope, 1,100-foot tightrope, three inches wide, and when he walked across it, people erupted in applause. But he didn't just do it once. He did it over and over again. And he didn't just walk across it. If you know the story, one time he went uh, across it blindfolded. Another time he went across it with a sack over his head. Another time he went uh, over it riding a bicycle. Another time he went over it, he took a stove out. Listen to this. He took a stove out and he cooked an omelet uh, in the middle of the Niagara Falls, and then he lowered it 160 feet below to a cruise ship where he gave them the meal. I mean, people were just mesmerized by it. It took a total of 23 painstaking, nail-biting minutes to walk from one side to the other. <laughs> and then, on one occasion, if you know the story, he actually walked across it with a wheelbarrow from the Canadian side to the U.S. side. And when he got over to the other side, again, the people were cheering. And he said, how many of you believe that I could take a person across the falls with me? And everyone erupted, believing, in fact, he could do it. And then he said, do I have any volunteers? And of course, there were no volunteers. And it reminds us that there is a distinct difference between believing something in your head and actually acting on it in your life. And today, Jesus is going to give us a similar type of invitation to express our faith in actions. And one of the biggest invitations in Scripture that I have discovered over the last couple years is found in Ephesians chapter 1. Listen carefully. It's a prayer from from Paul. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Now here is the invitation. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. 
Say that with me. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Now, there should be two questions you are asking yourself. The first one is, how would one go about tapping into that power? You should be asking that question. And another question, if you sit on it long enough, is why didn't Jesus raise himself from the dead? Jesus is God. So why is this text, along with several others, suggestion suggesting that Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead? So I want to address the second question first. And to do so, we migrate over to the next book, the book of Philippians chapter 2, the day that Jesus left the heavens and took on human flesh. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, very familiar passage of scripture, but lots of meat here. Let's take a look at it who, being in the very nature God, speaking of Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now, we know in the study of Scripture that it was determined in eternity past that Jesus would come from the heavens next to the Father, into our space to represent us and to form a new humanity out of belief in his work on the cross. And he was going to, in essence, show us the way to God. He didn't want to, in this situation, to take advantage of the reality of the fact that he was God and all of the power that comes with being such a being. He didn't want to take advantage of that and so he decided to, it says, make himself nothing. Or in some of your translations, it says he emptied himself. I actually like that better. He emptied himself, which is the Greek word kenosis. Now, it doesn't tell us in Philippians 2 what specifically he emptied himself of. However, if you were to read the Gospels from beginning to end, looking for clues, you would see it because it is consistent and it is repeated over and over again. So lean in because I'm going to say something extremely important as it relates to Orthodox Christianity. What we have here is called the hypostatic union. Oh, doesn't that just minister to your soul? The hypostatic union is the union between God and man so that at the collision of divinity and humanity, we have maintained 100% divinity and 100% humanity. But that is impossible. You either have to leave it as a mystery or you look at the pattern of Jesus and discover maybe an insight that was actually understood in the first three centuries of church history, the first three centuries of the church emerging that kind of lost its way. And it has to do, this is concept of kenosis and what he emptied himself of. And I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus, while he maintained his 100% full divinity at all times, even his 33 years walking on earth, that he left behind, he left behind in the heavens the three omnis. The three omnis, you're probably familiar with them. There is omnipresence which means present everywhere at all times. Wouldn't that be great for those of you parents out there that you could be all present everywhere at all times? 
omniscience, meaning having all knowledge of all things, and then omnipotence, which means all powers. That means that when Jesus walked the earth just for the 33 years, if he wanted to get somewhere, say from Bethany to Jerusalem, the only way he could get there was to walk. Number two, that means that Jesus, lean in, Jesus did not know everything just like you and me. Mm. Think about it. And number three, it means that Jesus did not have the power to do everything just like you and me. He did not want to take advantage of those three things so that he could identify with us and represent us and show us the way to live. That means that Jesus needed help with the miracles. Jesus needed help with healing people. And finally, Jesus needed help with rising from the dead. So that's the answer to the, first, the second question. Now back to the first one. How do I, how do you tap into this same power that raised Jesus from the dead? How do you do it? Well, Roseanne and I have four children. Our second child, uh, David, uh, was born without a left hand. He is now 33 years old. He is a litigator. His office building is 1717 Pennsylvania Avenue, right across the street from the White House. Isn't that, that a great time to be there? And this is a great time to be there. But when he was five, six years old, I wanted to teach him how to play catch, how to play ball. And so we went out into the backyard, and I wanted to model for him how he would catch, not how I would catch with two hands. And so when he threw the ball to me, I caught it, I took the glove, tucked it underneath my arm, and I threw it back to him, and we went back and forth that way. I was showing him how to catch, given his limitations. Then his younger brother, Stephen, comes out with his ball glove in hand, and he's uh, standing next to David, and so I threw a grounder to him, and wouldn't you know it, Stephen, who has two hands, when he caught the ball, he tucked it underneath his arm, and he threw the ball back to me and put the glove back on, just like I showed his brother. Because why? Because he was mimicking what we were doing. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 5 and verse 1, in the message translation, it says, Watch what God does, and then do it like children who learn proper behavior from their parents. The word watch there in the Greek is the word mimetai, where we get our word, say it, we get our word mimic. It is in human nature, if you have studied human nature, it is in our nature to mimic the behaviors of other people. As a matter of fact, it's probably the most effective way in which people learn. A mentor says, watch how I do it, and then I will watch how you do it that we are mimicking one another. And Jesus knew this because he created us this way. Therefore, the best way for Jesus to show us the way to live our life and to show us the path to God, to show us how to tap into the same power that raised him from the dead was to leave the heavens and come down into our backyard with a proverbial baseball glove in hand and show us the way without the advantage 
that he had as God. Jesus is going to show us three things that he specifically did as the pattern of his life that will enable us to tap into the same power that raised him from the dead. The first one is, is that Jesus emptied himself. Jesus emptied himself, so must we. Jesus put himself in a very vulnerable position and he gave up all of his control when he came to this earth that was rightfully his. And so he has all this power, now he has access to none of it by himself and he has placed himself in a very vulnerable position and we are being invited to do the same thing if we wish to tap in to the same power that raised him from the dead, except there is a shift. We need to put ourselves in a vulnerable position because in fact, that is where we are. The difference, we are called to give up the illusion of control. Jesus gave up control that he actually had. We're simply giving up the illusion that we ever were in control. Make sense? The reality is God has given you certain domains, certain things that you can control, like your eating or like things like that, some disciplines. And those are the small things in life and you should control them. If you don't control them, they're gonna get out of control and it's your fault. However, the big things in life that really determine the outcome of your life, these are the things that were never in your control. And one of the biggest mistakes you make is living as though you are in control. And the very first step into tapping into the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is to do exactly what he did, put himself in a vulnerable position by giving up his control. Now we are being invited to do the same thing by giving up the illusion of control. But this is going against human nature to give up control. Even if you are a mature follower of Christ, you will go to your grave struggling to give up control. It's hard. A burst of thunder sent a three-year-old running into her parents' bedroom. She stood in the doorway and she said, mommy, mommy, I'm scared. And the mother, half awake and half unconscious, says, go back to bed, sweetie. God will be with you. The little girl thought for just a moment and she responded, mommy, you go in there and sleep with God and I'll stay in here with daddy, <laughs> right? It's sometimes hard because we cannot see God. It's sometimes hard to wrap our arms around God and trust that he will do a good job of being in control of our lives. It's difficult. One of the biggest observations, kind of the, ironies of being invited by my publisher to write a book on this concept, which has lots of theological intrigue for me, which you and your pastor and I share in common as a, a passion for intellectual pursuit of scriptures, is that in the middle of writing the book, I experienced betrayal. I had four guys, three particular guys, that we made a covenant, we made a promise together, and they, without notice, broke that promise and betrayed me. Initially, it didn't bother me very much at all, but as it started to sink in what had happened, uh, I went into more than just a funk. If you're familiar with uh, new brain science that's going on, 
uh, what ended up happening, I went from the upstairs of my brain down into the basement of my brain when I experienced, and you, you're the same way, where you experience a bit of trauma in your life. You go down to the downstairs where we engage in fight or flight or freeze. It's a place called the amygdala, and it's downstairs in your brain. And God has given you that place to go when you're in a place of survival. And so I went down there because I was in control of my situation and I needed to survive. I needed to try to overcome this betrayal and make sense out of it. The problem was I stayed in the basement of control too long. And if any of you know anything about counseling or anything about brain science, if you stay in the basement too long, someone shuts the door to get back upstairs where joy and peace reside. And when I realized it was nonsense the way I was thinking and control, trying to control the situation, and I tried to go back upstairs, I couldn't. And I spent eight months in clinical depression. So can you imagine with me sitting at my desk, writing a book for Thomas Nelson Publishers on his mighty strength, walk daily in the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And most days over that eight months, I couldn't even raise myself off the couch. The irony did not escape me whatsoever. And I knew that I was in trouble and I needed to get back upstairs again. There's new, this, the, the new science called a neurotheology where, where basically we now know that this in the upper stairs of your brain, there is this piece of your brain called the thalamus that can relate to community, particularly community with God. That when you engage in authentic, vulnerable worship or prayer, or you're walking out in nature, that you can actually connect relationally to God. And that stimulates this upstairs thalamus that sends signals to the frontal precortex of your brain where character is literally shaped and formed. Virtue is literally shaped and formed and changes. We now know that the very root of spiritual formation in becoming like Jesus or the fruit of the spirit, like love, joy, and peace, which I so desperately wanted to get access to during that eight months of clinical depression, it is stimulated first and foremost by a loving relationship with the Heavenly Father. And when you engage in that experience, it stimulates the thalamus that sends messages to the frontal precortex of your brain and it begins to reshape and to re-experience things like love, joy, and peace. But at the, at the time, I couldn't get back up there again. 85 times the Bible invites us to trust in the Lord. If you love the study of scripture, anything that's mentioned 85 times as an action step for us, that's something you can take to the bank. So the very first thing that Jesus did, he emptied himself of control. We're invited to empty ourselves of the illusion of control and you must do that in order to tap into this power. The second thing that Jesus did was an alignment. Jesus aligned his life to the will of the Father, so must we. This step is as equally challenging as the first one. You may or may not have ever seen this in the pattern of Jesus before, but just simply later today, just read the Gospel of John and note 
Jesus's obsession with discovering the will of the Father. He says that he will not move or say a thing apart from the will of the Father. Now keep in mind this point of view that Jesus had to go discover the will of the Father because he did not know it the 33 years he walked on the earth. He had to enter into dependency upon the will of the Father through prayer and communion to discover it, and he would not move to the right or to the left until he had discovered it. I'll give you just one example. John chapter 6, verse 38 reads, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. He's acknowledging that, in fact, he came down from heaven, so he is God. But when he came down and entered into our world, he now put himself in a vulnerable place, and he would not move. Even though he is fully God, he would not move until he discovered the will of God. Jesus had, as we'll see in a moment here, a will of his own, a human will of his own, but he perpetually and passionately submitted to the will of the Father. Why? 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 Because he knew the power of God was reserved for the will of God. He knew the power of God was reserved for the will of God. <laughs> we have a will of our own, don't we? And it is hard for us to submit. And this is giving us insights as to why followers of Jesus struggle to tap into the power that is resident within them. Because we struggle to pattern our life after the life of Jesus. The first comes with the, with the element of trusting in turning all of our control over to him, giving up the illusion of power, and now it's this submission to God's will over my will. It reminds me of the little girl who was being unruly, and disobedient and obstinate. And finally, her mother, exasperated, told her to go over into the corner and sit down. So the girl folded her arms and stomped over to the corner and she sat down. She waited a few minutes and then she shouted out, Mommy, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. And that's the way we are. Sometimes we look like we're playing the part, but our will is standing up against the will of the Father on the inside. Submission is not in our sinful nature, but we have to figure this out because as for Jesus, so for us, the power of God is reserved for the will of God. And I make the observation that one of the biggest disappointments that many Christians have because we have not been taught this point is that we feel that we are we're living powerless lives even though you have likely read Ephesians 1 before and you just gloss over it and say, that must be for pastors or missionaries or somebody else because I live a very mundane, lackluster life with zero power. I believe one of the reasons why Christians have not been able to experience the power is because we're asking the power to be unleashed on our will and not the will of the Father and it would never enter into the mind of Jesus that something like that would happen. We want the power of God leashed on our will, not God's will. So back to my situation again. I'm in a dark situation. This book that was supposed to take eight months to write ended up taking two years to write because God is going to say, you want to write a book? 
on the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's going to be more than just an intellectual discourse. We're going to take you through the ringer to make sure you can discover it. And I had to now not only give up the illusion of control in my life, which took me down to the basement to begin with, thinking I was in control, and now I'm going to have to align my life to the will of the Father. And uh, there are two things specifically that came to mind over that eight months. One, I know it was God's will because his word declares it. I must forgive. I must forgive. You've heard the phrase, to not forgive is like drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. And this is what was happening to me. The second thing I knew was God's will. I must trust, you'll know this language, I must trust God in the upper story that he is writing a story for my life and that what they meant for evil, it was evil. I don't have to call it good, but what they meant for evil, God is going to mean for good in my life, not just the life of Joseph of the Old Testament, but for Randy Frazee's life in the 21st century. Romans 8, 28, for we know all things work together for the good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. That is, the, that is the absolute essential verse on the upper and lower story as it relates to our life. That if we align our, it's not automatic that God's going to write a good story for your life. The condition is that you align your life to his upper story purposes. And when you align your life to his upper story purposes, he promises on the word of God that he's going, to, uh, he's going to write a good story for your life. And I had to decide in this moment yet again whether or not I was going to believe that. In the book, uh, um, we uh, lay out, I lay out, my best understanding of how to hear the voice of God. And I borrowed from a personal mentor of mine, a book I had the privilege of writing several years ago was called Renovation of the Heart. I rewrote it for students from my mentor, Dallas Willard. And probing Dallas Willard's book on hearing God, in it he said, apart from the Bible, if I had to look at anything about understanding and hearing the voice of God, I would get it from F.B. Meyer's book, The Secret of Guidance. And uh, so I dove into that. As a matter of fact, we share a mutual love for F.P. Meyer, your pastor, just sent me this sort of original collection of his uh, devotional commentary through the whole Bible, and it sits proudly in my office now. F.P. Meyer uh, gives us what he calls the three lights or the three witnesses, and he's looking, we are looking for alignment of those three things. The first is the Word, the Word of God. The second is the Spirit, leaning into the teachings of of the still, small voice. And the third one is circumstances. And the more you get to know God and the more you look for alignment in those three things, the more confident that you can become that in fact, you have heard the voice of God for your life. So we must empty ourselves. We must align to the will of the Father. And the third one actually isn't that difficult once you get the first two. And this is empowerment. Jesus yielded to the power of the Holy Spirit, to the Holy Spirit's power, so must we. Once Jesus's life was aligned to the will of the Father, all that was left to do was to yield to the power of the Spirit within him to do what the Spirit can do. Here's, here's, a, here's, here's, a, here's a principle. To find 
power in the Christian life, we don't need to try harder, we need to yield harder. We don't need to try harder, we need to yield harder. And this is counterintuitive to human nature or to the way the world in which the world thinks. The power doesn't come by digging down deeper and trying harder to be a Christian. It actually is, once you align your life to the will of the Father, all you have to do is yield, yield to the power of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit within you will take control. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night before his crucifixion, he prayed this prayer three, not once, but three times. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not my will, but uh, as you will, but your will be done, right? And so here we see the human side of Jesus, right? Certainly at this point, Jesus knows the plan. He's been matured in being reminded of the plan they set from eternity past because he said it to his disciples on numerous occasions now that it's going to be time for him to actually die, that this is the purpose of his arrival. He knows that's the eternal plan of God, but his human will is wanting to get out of this. And if it didn't want to get out of it, he ain't relating to me because he understood the gruesome technique of Roman crucifixion, and his human will has said, okay, Father, I'm going to just pray it once. I'm going to pray it three times. If there is any other alternative to get, getting out of this situation tomorrow, I would like to get out of it. But as, cons as consistency, the consistency of the life of Jesus we see at the very end, but at the end of the day, not my will, but your will be done. He was in a vulnerable place, wrestling with his human will, but even at the end, he ultimately submits to the will of the Father. Now, the text here in the Garden of Gethsemane doesn't give us the Father's verbal answer like he gave at the baptism of Jesus. But we notice that Jesus did receive a sense of resolve. So he heard the Father, at least in his spirit, because after he prayed the third time, it says in Matthew 26, verse 46, he says to his disciples, rise, exclamation point. Let us go, exclamation point. Here comes my betrayer, exclamation point. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I've heard from the voice of the Father. I've heard it. It is his will that I continue moving forward to the cross. Uh, it's his will. There's no looking back. Let's do this. And you never see Jesus ever again doubt that this was his mission. At the yielding of Jesus to the will of the Father, the Holy Spirit automatically kicks in and takes over and sees Jesus through the cross. And in three days later, it is the Holy Spirit that raises him from the dead. Back to my story. Um, I have returned from the ashes. I am no longer clinically depressed. I got all kinds of help, but I ultimately believe it was the power of the Spirit and the will of God that healed me. And one of the reasons it took a long time, I believe, is because I, in the early days, tried to forgive out of obedience. You ever try to do that? It's the right thing to do. I forgave out of obedience, but it didn't stick. <laughs> you ever heard the phrase, uh, uh, 
I, I, can, I, I forgive, but I'll never forget. I always thought that that meant I'll choose not to forget. You know, I'll forgive you, but I will never, I will choose never to forget what you did to me. Actually, my experience was not that. I would have given any amount of money for the ability to go through one day or particularly one dark night without the memory of the betrayal emerging. I would have given anything to be able to forget. And I remember the first day I went an entire day and night without thinking about it that I really began to see healing. I not only forgave, but God's spirit gave me a renewed mind and I wasn't thinking about it anymore. And then alignment to his will. Here's the upper story as it unfolded. I sensed in that season that God was wanting me to be about city movements. And Jerry knows this, city movement stuff. That the hard work of trying to unite churches in a city to look like the one church that actually does exist in the city in terms of the perspective of Jesus. There's not hundreds of churches in Quincy, Illinois, or Kansas City, or whatever. There's only one. And it would be great, and God was calling me to that, and I knew that, and I was leaning into that. But it became very apparent to me that it wasn't going to happen in San Antonio, and it was through this experience that I landed just two and a half years ago in Kansas City, a place where I believe God is stirring his church to be united. And I'll just tell you, give you one example of the power of God's spirit in a renewed soul. Is uh, I uh, partnered with uh, Dave Ramsey out of Nashville, Tennessee, because we knew that the people in Kansas City, followers of Jesus, were struggling with margin in their life. They were struggling with margin. They did not have time, nor did they have any leftover money. So we could create any type of vision we wanted to for the church, and they would be excited about it. They'd have a Holy experience, Holy Spirit experience and worship with it, but they'd say, well, you know, we can't participate. I mean, because we have no margin. We have no more time and we have no more money. And so we said, before we create a big vision for the city, we're gonna to have to give the people of God more margin. And so we talked about margin in their time, and then we partnered with Dave Ramsey with the goal of taking 80% of our adult population through Financial Peace University that they might experience biblical principles of finding financial freedom. But we just didn't do it with one church, the church I was at, I'm at, but we did it with 110 churches in Kansas City and at the end of nine weeks, just with the people who reported, there were 9,200 credit cards cut up. $4.7 million in nine weeks was saved. And listen to this, $17.7 million of debt reduced. And 89% of the couples saying they're having better conversations about finances than they were before, which we know on all studies Conflict over finances is always in the top one to three causes of divorce in America. And you know when this happened? This happened at the end of last year, right before a thing called COVID-19. And people were sending me emails and saying, did you see this coming? Did you see this coming? And I said, if I would have saw this coming, I would have bought more toilet paper. I didn't see this coming. I'm not a prophet. I mean, I lead a nonprofit ministry. I mean, I'm not a prophet. But this is the spirit of God. This is the work of God. He's working the upper story, and he needed one more vessel, 
one more tool to do his will, and it needed to be in Kansas City because that's where God was working. And he took the betrayal that led me to my own Egypt. I'm not suggesting Kansas City's Egypt, but follow the analogy with me here. Uh, It led me to Egypt where then God lifted me up after he let me be humble so that I could be the kind of leader that could bring churches together to experience something just in time to provide relief for people who would ultimately lift their hands to God and give praises to him. Now there are five other cities in the United States that are looking to replicate the same experience. And I go, oh, I get it. Not my will, but your will be done. (laughs) Charles Blondin uh, ended up getting a volunteer. Um, The guy's name was Harry Colcord, but instead of climbing into the wheelbarrow, Harry jumped on Charles Blondin's back to walk across the Niagara Falls. There it is. Here's the instructions that Blondin gave to Harry and see if it doesn't relate to our spiritual relationship with Jesus. He said, look up, Harry. You are no longer Colcard. You are Blondin. Until I clear this place, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. And they successfully got to the other side. And so today, Jesus has a wheelbarrow in hand, and he's saying, does anybody believe that I could put a human being in this wheelbarrow and get them to the other side where power exists? And the congregation erupts in applause for Jesus. Yes, we believe you can do it. (laughs) Now, right now, Jesus is saying, any volunteers? And I'm telling you, if you want to experience the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, you got to get in Jesus's wheelbarrow. Actually, get in his wheelbarrow. And if you will do that, you will begin to experience a power like you've never experienced before. A power to move mountains. Does anybody of us need a physical mountain to move? We need power to overcome betrayal. We need power to overcome the job that we just got passed over for. We need power to overcome our financial devastation. We need power to overcome the devastation and the trauma, let's just call it out, of COVID-19 and of racial tension and of political elections. I mean, we are all traumatized. And the power to rise above it is found in the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. But even though you're a follower of Jesus and the power resides within you, you do not have access to it unless you will empty yourself of the illusion of control. Number two, you will align your life perpetually to the will of the Father. And number three, you will yield harder, not try harder, to the power of the Holy Spirit within you. So what I want to do is I want to pray for you. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, bow your heads, and if you have, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet.
I'm going to ask you that if you have an issue right now, maybe one of them that I mentioned, it could be emotional, it could be spiritual, feeling stuck, underwhelmed, bored, tired of COVID. What I want you to do, if that's you, nobody's looking, I want you to take your fist and I want you to clench them. Just clench them. Harder, harder, until it hurts. And I want this to represent the struggle that you have and the, and the, and the stress that you are feeling. And now while you're your, your fists are clenched. I want you to be honest with God like Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and simply tell him what you want. What is your will? Just tell him. Be honest. He already knows. Use the language of David. Say, I want you to take my enemy out, chop his head off. Whatever it is, just tell him honestly what you want. I want my betrayers to pay for what they did and the years that they've taken from my life and the medications that I had to be on. I want them to hurt. Now what I want you to do, and at any time you can drop out if you're not in on this. This is about an authentic expression here. I want you to take those clenched fists and I want you to open them up with your palms down, signifying to God that you are releasing and emptying yourself of the illusion of control and simply whisper to him in prayer, God, I empty myself of the illusion that I am in control of my life. I trust in you. Now, this next one is the most difficult one of all, so you can drop out if you're not in, in for it. But now what I want you to do is I want you to turn your palms upwards and simply whisper to God, not my will, but your will be done. And then if you did that, I'm going to invite you to raise your hands to the sky and declare to the heavens and to your God, I yield my life to the Holy Spirit to empower me to fulfill your will. Heavenly Father, I thank you for everyone leaning in and listening today to your word through the experience of a broken vessel who ironically was called to write a book on the same power that raised Jesus from the dead but couldn't get himself off the couch. And you have showed yourself to be strong and that your word to be true and what has been true in the life of Jesus and what has been true of my life is in fact true of everyone here if we'll simply mimic and follow the pattern of Jesus who loves us so much. We pray all this in the name of that one, Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, amen. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. A special thank you to those of you that choose to give to this ministry. It's because of your generosity that this ministry is possible. You can click the link in the description to give now or visit thecrossing.net forward slash podcast for more information. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to subscribe and share with your friends, tagging One Crossing on social media. Thank you so much for listening.